Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, and this is part 2 in our series on 1 Timothy. So last week we began our, our series on the first letter of the Apostle Paul to his young apprentice, Timothy, who was, he was a pastor. He was pastoring a church at Ephesus. And ministry was becoming a little bit challenging for him. There was a lot of challenges he had to deal with and because some dangerous wolves had been in the flock and they started teaching false doctrines. The apostle instructed uh, Timothy to, to stay there and to not just advise them, ask them, but to command them to, to stop disseminating false ideas. These ideas that don't really edify anyone, but to focus on the sound doctrine, which are the core issues of our faith. And in this, the, the follow-up passage, the, the verses that follow to the end of this chapter, in fact, the whole chapter, the, there are two digressions of the Apostle Paul. He tends to do this uh, when he writes his letters that he starts on a subject and then he says, by the way, and then he continues, and by the way. So he, he goes and then comes back to his main theme. So here we have two digressions. The first one is when he starts to talk about these teachers of the law, these false teachers of the law, these wolves. And then he says, now let me tell you about the law. And now as he talks about the gospel, he says, now tell me about, let me tell you about grace. And few people, few people could talk more passionately, intimately about the grace of God than those who have experienced it so intimately in their lives. And one of those is, of course, the Apostle Paul. And he tells us what God is like as he describes the grace. What did what did God do for Paul and for us to bring us to salvation? In the gospel, in the gospel, God shows, first of all, his abundant grace, verses 12 to 14. I thank, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted on ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, in his intention to encourage Timothy to be faithful, to continue in ministry, Paul goes back to his own calling. And after this, he will, in the following verses, he will talk about his conversion. But here, he talks about his calling. Yet for Paul, they are so closely linked together, both in time and in space. Remember, in, in, in Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul was, was waiting blind after being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was blinded for, for three days and he was in no man's land. He was a lost man. What happens now, right? Meanwhile, 
God had to convince the Christians there and, 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 and a very strong believer, Ananias, to, to convince, he was having, Ananias was having doubts about meeting the Apostle Paul because he was a violent man, because of his reputation. So the, so the Lord had to convince Ananias and say to him, this man is my chosen instrument. The fact that God had completely transformed Paul was astonishing. These early Christians were used to to seeing miracles. Many miracles were performed in the early church. Even people raised from the dead as we, we, we read the stories. Amazing miracles. But nothing like this. Because the biggest miracle is a person that turns from darkness to light, from death to life, a life transformed. And, and, and the dramatic transformation of the Apostle Paul, not even the early Christians could believe, could understand. So much so that others needed a bit of pushing, a bit of convincing before they met him. For me, this is further proof that God can do the same for anyone. If he can save Paul, he can save anyone. After his wild living and the, the days that he spent trading slaves, John Newton, John Newton, yes, the very one who wrote Amazing Grace, after his slave trading days and while living, he, he was converted and called to the ministry. His tomb is, is in the town of Olney in, in the UK and he ministered in this, in this church for many years in the 1700s. And before he died, he wrote his own epitaph. The epitaph is the, the writing on the tombstone, right? I don't know, have you ever thought about what you want written on your tombstone? I, I have, and I, I'm going to say, he lies Paul Mosichuk, a great man. <laughs> Good looking too. And uh, heaven is, is really privileged to have him. <laughs> this is what... John Newton uh, wrote, he actually wrote his epitaph and he wanted this written on his tomb. And he says, John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. That's what he wrote in his grave. I said, wow, he got it, right? He got it. How bad was John Newton? He was pretty bad. Let's go back. How bad was the Apostle Paul? He was pretty bad. Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. A, a, a blasphemer is, is someone who slanders God's name. 
in, in, I remember trying to, to reach someone for Christ and hurting call all these names to God and I just, I just felt sick inside as I was listening all this stuff. Someone who had been a Christian, some now slandering the name of God. I felt sick. Now, you see, with the Apostle Paul, he believed that he was serving God by persecuting Christians. A Jew like him, and a Pharisee in training as he was, a Jew like him would never slander God's name because it's just not done. It's it's the worst type of sin. But here is actually an argument for the deity of Jesus because Paul then realized who Jesus was, that he was God, God incarnate, and that by persecuting Jesus, he was blaspheming God. And his sin was worse because as he he was persecuting Christians, he was actually persecuting Jesus himself, which is what Jesus told him on the road to Damascus. In his zeal to fulfill the Jewish law, Paul's violence was also on display as he hunted Christians from Jerusalem all the way to to Syria, Damascus. And and the word that is used there of of a violent man is someone who deliberately harms or humiliates another person out of pride and contempt. He hated them. Despite all this, he was shown mercy by God. The exact opposite of what Paul showed the believers he persecuted. And one of those was Stephen. But before anyone is able to, now that he's been walking with God a few years, before anyone is able to bring up his past, his violent past against him, Paul doesn't hide it, but he tells it like it is. Today, with this type of background, the social media platforms would have an absolute field day, wouldn't they? They would have photos, they would have things he wrote, things he said. They will all be popping up everywhere. And anyone is just a keystroke away for the world to cancel you, to say all things about you. You see, in our day, grace is almost a dirty word. We're crying out for justice. And in our cry for for justice, we have forgotten all about abundant grace. Let's remember that God does not save us because of our worthiness, any worthiness on our part. It is all His mercy and grace. So when, so when Paul says he was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief, it doesn't mean that he's, he's excusing himself or that he somehow deserved it. He doesn't, he doesn't mean that. He means that he did not willfully reject the light shown to him. 
in the, in the Bible, you see, there is a distinction between a person who sins in ignorance and one who willfully sins, rejecting the light that God has revealed him. You can go over the speed limit unknowingly and say, well, I didn't know what the speed limit was on the road. But once you know that the speed limit is 60, well, that's what you've got to aim at. You know that the law is, right? Anything over is, you're transgressing. Gospel. You see, when you share the gospel to someone, they can no longer claim ignorance. They can never say, nobody told me. Right? That is part of the duty we have in sharing the gospel, show people the light. They then can willfully reject the light and continue in the merry way or they can accept it. And here, the, the, the former person who doesn't know what he's doing, they, they may be shown mercy but the latter is in danger of losing the, the light he has been shown and, and become even more hardened. A person rejects the light of God once. Yeah, 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 I've heard that before, rejects it twice and three times. Yeah, 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 I grew up in a Christian home. Don't tell me, don't talk to me about that. All that rubbish. But he can never say, I was never told. It's a willful rejection. Back in the 1830s, George Wilson was convicted of robbing the US mail and was sentenced to be hanged. The then American president, Andrew Jackson, issued a pardon for Wilson, but he refused to accept it. The matter then went to the Chief Justice Marshall, who concluded that Wilson will have to be executed. A pardon is a slip of paper, wrote Marshall, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. He didn't accept the pardon. For many today, the the pardon offered through Christ is not accepted. Yet God continues to reach out. Why? Why does he do that? Because of his immense patience, which is our next point, verses 15 to 17. His immense patience. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his, there's that word, immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to 
to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. The the Apostle Paul was a, a great example of God's perfect patience. Think of all the years that he was butting heads against God, thinking he was doing God's will. Um, The Apostle Paul actually describes that, you know, it's a hard thing for you to kick against the goads. You're going against my will here. You're coming up against God all the time. And if he can save someone like Paul, like I said, he can save anybody. But God delights. God delights in hard cases to display his glory. Like somebody walking into a yard that is an absolute mess and then after a week's work it's turned into something absolutely beautiful and you say, wow, how did you do that? Alexander, the Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren said, the sign of growing perfection is the growing consciousness of imperfection. The more you become like Christ, the more you will find out your own unlikeness to him. You see, his, his, his perfect holiness is, is enough to wipe us out with a mere word, without even a word spoken. He can wipe us out. Yet he is patient with us. Why? Peter tells us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now these verses here, verses 15 to 17, they are one of those nuggets of gold in the Scriptures. Um, after I, I'm, I'm, I will explain this to you, you will understand a little bit more and appreciate it. I'm going to shine the, the diamond of the gold a little bit for you so you can appreciate it. Here, Paul is not talking about being called into the ministry. We, that what he spoke in the first few verses, he spoke about that. Here, he, he goes back a little bit further back and he, he's talking about being called as a Christian. Now, all of us who who are believers can relate to him on this, right? Yet all of our experiences will be different. Very different. Some of them, some of our experiences in coming to, to Christ are more dramatic. For others, less so. For example... Young Timothy had no Damascus Road experience. And uh, today we actually use the expression Damascus Road experience as a figure of speech when someone, you know, when someone who's had a a dramatic turnaround in life, we say he's had a a Damascus Road experience. But only Paul had a Damascus Road experience. And God has many and varied ways of calling his own and he uses all of them. So we shouldn't say because you haven't had that experience that you're not really a Christian. 
But whatever way he uses, God's purpose through the Son is the same. Jesus came to save sinners. So if you think you are basically good, a good person, you're doing everybody a favour by coming to church this morning or watching online, if you basically think you're a good person, not too bad, not a murderer, I'm not a violent person, I'm not a blasphemer, then it, it sounds like you, you really haven't been crushed. You've never been crushed by the weight of your own sins. We spoke about this last week. And it looks like Christ didn't come to save you. You're already going to be saving yourself. You're already going to go to heaven on your own merits, looks like it. Because Jesus came to save sinners only. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So unless you recognise your own sin, there's no repentant heart. You're still unrepentant in your sins. And then he says, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is something worth paying attention to when he uses this phrase. And, and it is, this phrase is actually unique to the pastoral letters, to Timothy and to Titus. It, it is similar to when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say unto you. It, mean, it means, please pay attention to what I'm about to tell you now. Special attention. So, so the Apostle wants us to really take him seriously when he says, I am the worst of sinners. And, and the statement is, is actually quite dramatic that, that there is disagreement among, amongst the, the scholars who say, well, Paul was bad, but he really wasn't that bad. There have been worse people than Paul. Perhaps the Apostle meant that he was the worst sinner in the sense that his sin of aggressively going after the church, of trying to tear it down rather than building up, is the worst kind of sin. And, and, it's, and when you're trying to deliberately destroy God's work, be careful. Be careful. Going against the bride of Christ. He's very jealous of his bride. It's much worse than simply just walking away and going your own way than looking back and throwing rocks and trying to destroy his church. And it is significant that Paul makes this statement not as a, as a new believer who's come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit about his own sins, but this is, he, he says he's the worst of sinners after he, after he had walked with God for over 25 years. And J.I. Packer makes, makes a great point in, in, in Paul's progression, or, or we better call it a digression, about himself. Let me join the dots for you so you can get this. This is part of the, the, the nugget here, right? In 1 Corinthians 15.9, which was written earlier, in 59 AD, Paul says, 
I am the least of the apostles. So he's up in this group up here, right? Then in Ephesians 3.8, which was written four years later, he says, I am the, the very least of all the saints. So from here, he's down here. You know where I'm going with this, right? And here, written later still to Timothy, he says, I am the chief, I am the worst of all sinners. Written in 64 AD. And J.R. Packer continues and says, The healthy heart is one that bows down in humility and rises in praise and adoration. We spoke about that last night. The Psalms strike both these notes again and again and again. So too Paul, and J.R. Packer continues, so too Paul in his letters both articulates humility and breaks into doxology. Doxology is praise to God. As the years, and he says, as the years pass, he, the Apostle Paul, goes lower and lower. He grows downward. And as his self-esteem sinks, there's that word, self-esteem, we spoke about last week, so his rapture of praise and adoration for the God who so wonderfully saved him rises. See the contrast? Packer is, is spot on in this. And I love it the way he's joined it together. And in verse 17, this is exactly what we read. This is... As the Apostle Paul goes down, he rises up in praise and in doxology and he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. It's all him. John the Baptist said when he looked at Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. As the apostle got older, he became more and more humble in his ways. But you see, humility as you get older is not always a given, is it? The opposite might actually be true. while visiting nursing homes. I've been doing that for a while, especially when mum and dad were there. I have witnessed old people in their walking frames barking orders to the nursing staff and to the other residents, demanding attention, shouting here and there and everywhere. And I say, and the nurses just shake their head and I say, yeah, they're not well. But it's more than that. Your illness, more than that, isn't it? Don't use your situation, your condition, your illness, your sickness, your mental state, your spiritual state, whatever it is, as an excuse for your pride. Don't. The pride of youth, intact in old age. It's a shame, really, isn't it? 
And I have seen similar attitudes in churches. Age is no excuse before God. I'm sorry, he just doesn't do that. Sin is a sin is a sin. doesn't matter if you're young, middle-aged or old. If you're well or if you're sick. No excuses. The Bible doesn't show any. Why should you? The more, the more we think of ourselves, the less we will think of God. And I fear that many who claim to believe in Christ have no idea of the sinfulness of their own heart. As a result, lack the deep gratitude for God's grace that Paul had. We have, in our society today, we have so magnified supposed human worth and downplayed the holiness of God to such a degree that God's grace in salvation isn't really seen as a, as a big deal at all. It's just an add-on. It's just an app. It's, a, it's an insurance that you buy, a policy that you maintain. Yet the exact opposite should be true for all of us. The closer you get to Christ, the further down you should go. And we will all go down. Let me remind you. And some of us are closer to meeting him than others, right? So you better get ready. Let go of your pride and contemplate and worship our Saviour. Another quote from John Newton. In his old age, he said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. End of quote. That's good, isn't it? And it's a reminder also that God, he is righteous. Verses 18 to 20. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Last week I said that this word command is, appears quite often in, in the pastoral epistles. And the command to which Paul refers to here is the one contained in verses 3 to 4. And after his digression, remember we spoke about the digression, he now returns to the subject that he began in, in verses 3 to 4. Furthermore, he, he refers to some of the prophecies that were made about Timothy, but we actually have no record of these prophecies, when or where, unless these prophecies were given at the, at the time of Timothy's ordination, which we, we will talk about in chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. 
We have already discussed about God's abundant grace and immense patience. And we all like to hear about that, right? Grace, patience. God is good. But if, 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 if we just limit his goodness to his grace and patience, it's not a complete picture of God. Because we, would have, we could end God's word right there and walk away with a happy life. But there is a warning here from the apostle that we need to heed. Yes, our God is gracious and patient, but he's also holy and righteous. David, the psalmist, said, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. And John challenges us, if you know that he is righteous and you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. You know he is righteous. You know that. So we've got to also do as he tells us to do. Live as he tells us to live. Doing what is right, even though it's going to be tough going, we have to do it. And the fundamental nature of Christianity is that it is not a philosophy of life. It is not a sporting club we follow. It is not a game we play. It is actually, the biblical description is warfare in which we are involved. It's not just a battle. It is an ongoing war, conflict. The moment you begin your Christian life by faith in Jesus Christ, you entered, you sign up for this lifelong battle. And this struggle is not intended to be easy. And many Christians forget that when the battle gets hard. And, and a good conscience is a good conscience is, is the is the is the rudder that guides us so that we don't shipwreck our faith against a reef or against the beach or against the rocks. Now, like I said last week, our conscience can be affected by unrepentant sin because a bad conscience doesn't care anymore. Therefore, we need to maintain a good conscience. And here are two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whose faith has been shipwrecked. They appear to have been leaders, teachers that were part of the church in Ephesus. And it's, it's, it is not common for the apostle to name people like this, wrongdoers. And I'm sure that Timothy, along with the people at, at the church, would have known who Hymenaeus and Alexander were. Now, of course, the apostle Paul will be up for defamation, wouldn't he? I'm going to show you. That's what will happen. Well, the Apostle Paul had no problem naming them as a lesson to, to the rest of the church. And they weren't the first and they certainly weren't the last. People who behave like this. And it must have been painful for the Apostle Paul to, to, to think about the people who have shipwrecked their faith in his many years of ministry. In my years as a pastor... It's painful to watch people do this. And you've seen it. I've seen it. 
Ted and Sue would have seen it. They were 50 years of celebrating after they finished college and some of them are no longer serving, not even believers anymore after starting so well. I can say the same. Shipwrecked their faith. Brothers, once considered brothers and sisters in Christ, now no longer walking in the truth. Terrible to see people who have once received the mercy and grace of God, only to see them destroy their faith. And there have also been outstanding Christian leaders who have who we have held up as an example of faith and commitment suddenly fall because they did not hold to the faith and a good conscience. So when the Apostle Paul talks about handing someone over to, to Satan, he's talking about believers who have given in to unrepentant sin. That's what he's referring to handing someone over to Satan. Because you can't hand over to Satan someone who is a non-believer, an unbeliever. Because they already belong to Satan. They already belong to darkness. Now, in the Old Testament, we see God giving Satan permission to inflict loss and illness with limitations on, on who? On Job, right? But that is not the case here. And handing them over to Satan is not a a sudden act taken in the heat of anger, right? That's not it. This is the result of a long course of spiritual deterioration which ends in the fourth step, which is found in Matthew chapter 18, which is excommunication. If those certain people continue to be rebellious, teaching false doctrines, then this is the end result. We can't continue like this. I don't care how much you like them. That's irrelevant. It means that they were removed from the church's fellowship, therefore ending their influence on the flock, on the other believers. As a result, they were no longer in the environment of God's blessing but placed under Satan's realm where they would experience his malice. They wouldn't have the support of the church. Now, hopefully, hopefully they, they learn the lesson and are restored. They want to come back. They won't continue in the, in the rebellious ways. There is a hope there for restoration that they will learn. And we all need to understand that in this spiritual battle that we're in, our soul is not only the the battleground, it is also the prize. If you are yet to commit your life to Christ, you are a sinner who needs to repent and come from the darkness into the light. You need to do that. I don't know how much time you have, God is patient, but he will not wait forever. Good news is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. That's the great news. That's the abundant grace of the gospel. 
And if you're already a believer, please know that you did not become a Christian and have those things forgiven just so you can sail spiritually through life. You know, that somehow you can go into cruise mode and just sail around the Bahamas, right? In fact, if you do that, you're in danger of shipwrecking your soul. You need, as it says here, you need to fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. We're not on a cruise. Hunger to know God more, more and more each day. Get to know Him more and you will praise Him more and more when you see how sinful you are and how great He is and how perfect and loving. Hold on to His promises. They are true. Know what He is doing for you Know what he is doing in you and know where he is leading you into the life that is everlasting. And know that he's holding on to you and once you are his, he will never let you go. We have a marvellous God who loves us. Praise be to him. Amen.